Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hello and welcome to Comic Book Yeti's Cryptid Creator Corner. I am one of the hosts of the podcast, Jimmy Gasparro, and I have uh, an, an exciting episode today that I have been looking forward to. I am here with the writer of one of my favorite comic books that is currently being made. And uh, he also has a lot of other things going on that we're going to talk about. But uh, referring to the Eisner-nominated Philadelphia, which was uh, nominated for Best New Series um, with uh, artwork by Jason Sean Alexander. But here with me today is the writer Rodney Barnes. Rodney, welcome to uh, the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so start off, I, um, uh, you know, I'll try and contain my, uh, excitement. I'm a huge fan. I love Philadelphia. Um, I, I live right outside of Philly, which, uh, as I got my Philly sweatshirt on, cause, uh, game five of the series is tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, uh, we're all very, uh, excited around here. Um, but it's for anyone that isn't familiar with the series and, and I want to talk, uh, kind of about Rodney's trajectory. Uh, I don't know how you couldn't be familiar with it, but if any of my listeners aren't, I highly recommend you picking it up. It is, to call it a vampire story, I think is doing it a, a disservice, but it's about a, a a cop in Baltimore, Jimmy Sangster, who returns home uh, due to the death of his father, Detective James Sangster, um, and finds that things are not as they appear to be in the the city of Philadelphia. Um, but it is uh, such a a moving uh, comic book at times, not just in terms of the the horror aspect of it, but it is it's sociopolitical elements. It is just it, I think the fourth volume just came out now. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, Rodney, I wanted to ask you um, just to touch on it, you know, briefly, kind of what. How long had the idea of Philadelphia been kind of gestating before you really started to to get into writing it? Uh, Philadelphia, I'd probably say since I was a kid, uh, when I used to go see a lot of uh, Hammer horror films, vampire films, um, and I started to play around with the idea, even back then, of if I ever got a shot to write a comic book, a vampire comic book, what would it be? So <clears throat> as the years went on and I went to college and then different things, I'd always sort of pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down. But then when my writing career started for in television, I started taking it a little bit more seriously and um, adding elements and taking elements away. And then when I saw the play Hamilton, And I struck up my relationship with Jason, Sean, Alexander. Everything sort of fell into place and um, the final pieces. And then there's the actual sitting down and doing it. Then it's what you have. (laughs) And there is a there is a a scene where um, uh, John Adams himself is sitting and watching Hamilton and commenting on it, which is. it's such an interesting kind of commentary on Adams himself as a person, as a president, and you know the reality of 
someone who might be in that position to kind of see how they thought of themselves and see how now history has uh, painted them in terms of the popular culture and how that, you know, how that that changes um, at Mm -hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you, I, I have to assume that you did a lot of like historical research because of the number of characters that are in it, not only in terms of, uh, known historical characters, but there are several other that, that probably, I, I, I would say the average person, um, like wouldn't be familiar with that do have some actual basis in, in history, in particular in later volumes, the character of Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Um, most so did you yeah most of this is i'm a history buff and um so most of the history that i chose were things that i'd already been aware of to lesser greater degrees i had to go back and find dates and you know exactly quincy massachusetts and certain things but i already sort of had in the back of my mind like i learned about jupiter when i was in the fourth grade and um i always thought that that was ironic story because uh jupiter evans who was um thomas jefferson's best friend slash slave companion uh actually like helped jefferson buy his books in college like took the little bit of money that he had when jefferson was broke and helped jefferson and then jefferson later like kept him in slavery and didn't free him and you know it was all of those stories sort of lingered around in my head and i was always looking for a house to put them in so, yes to the question of the research that was necessary once I picked the book up. Um, in later volumes, like there's a witch, Tatuba. I'd known her name through history. Um, but there was some specificity with uh, how she fit into the Salem witchcraft trials and that type of thing. Um, I wanted to be able to be spot on. I mean, what I try to do is... It's pretty logical. It's like um, the parts I don't know, like I start off in reality and then I blend into genre. So I'm trying to find as much specificity in the real stuff before I build the bridge to genre so that it becomes more believable um, Mm -hmm. and more grounded. And it's not like you have some books where you just take famous people and you stick them in a thing and, you know, give them some monster moniker or and. That's cool, but I always wanted to do something because the book has so much sociological stuff going on in it that, to me, the more respect that I show the characters that are real and come from history, the more, the easier that'll go down. Yeah, and I mean, you're you're right in terms of, you know, taking a character from history, putting him in modern day, creating a monster story around it. But you're really wrestling with a lot of, you know, political, social, racial issues. Yeah. I mean, going back to the, the founding of this country, reverberating through, you know, problems we still have today. And especially all even the past three years, everything we've seen from the Black Lives Matter movement, the riots relating around the murder of George Floyd. Um, it's uh, It seems daunting uh, from an outside perspective looking at the comic book and to think, well, this is, you know, anyone who thinks that, 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 that you know, that old thinking that comics like are just kind of fluff or silly or, I mean, you're really telling an in-depth um like dynamic story dealing with 
issues that have affected this country for, you know, since its founding and, and still today. Um, do you do you feel a certain responsibility in terms of how you um, not only portray the historical characters, but the Sangsters, the Seesaw, the, the characters who are, you know, the average citizenry of, of Philadelphia? For sure. I mean, um, you know, I have a deep sense of respect for the city of Philadelphia. I have a deep sense of respect for the characters that aren't from history, but still represent a sensibility that's happening in society. You know, Seesaw, uh, one of the vampires from the city, sort of represents the everyman, the common guy who uh, would more often not more often in life, just sort of fade into the background. He's just another guy. He was there was nothing uniquely special about him, but he's become special in this book. Um, the Sangster's just working class family, you know. Um, but I like to portray, you know, under that that everybody matters. That you know, regardless of whether you're a famous person or not. I think sometimes in history we canonize. Um, certain political figures, like somehow they're larger than life. And I don't think anything is larger than life. I think life is large enough in and of itself and that we all matter. And so mm -hmm. being able to um, get that level playing field of the political figures um, meshing with the uh, the regular rank and file guys that always was more of the character-driven thing. So you could have Thomas Jefferson talking to the Sangsters and it would feel just like a common conversation between two people. Because at the end of the day, that's what they were, were regular people. Yeah, I mean, the, the tendency to, especially to to mythologize the the founding fathers, you know, I mean, it was, I, I've, I've seen somewhat of a change in that just because I, I have two kids and they're in grade school now from when I was in grade school. But you know, that idea of painting history with these broad strokes and to make them seem larger than life and that they had some type of unique or special ability, uh, I think was foundational to education for a long time. I think that's been slowly changing over 10 years, but there's there's folks a lot smarter than me wor working on, on, on that. You know, that's just my mm -hmm. observation from having two kids in, in school. And also, you know, when we have conversations outside of it to try and tell them like, you know, these are regular people and they did some nice things, I guess, because this is, can be a nice country, but they did some, you know, some terrible things as well that uh, we sometimes, or at least some, some history classes gloss over. Um, yes. And you're wrestling with that. Uh, and you're wrestling it in a very realistic, not melodramatic way. Um, it, because at least your history, as I understand it, from working in, in television and screenwriting, did um, working on shows where maybe it was more grounded traditionally than, than a comic book kind of inform you know, your writing when you um, did to start write a comic book? Not really. I mean, I think... Um... When I started to write comics, I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I know a little more than that. I wouldn't say I know exactly what I'm doing. Um, because I was so used to writing television. I've been, I've been writing television professionally since the late 90s, early 2000s. And um, I didn't start writing comics until 2017 with uh, Falcon and Marvel. Mm -hmm. And so 
the relationship between words and art and um, just finding a rhythm and a voice within comics was a challenge. But fortunately, I got enough work that I was able, like anything, you just keep doing it over and over and over again. You find your voice and you find your way, or at least what you think works for you to get across. When you read a book that you wrote and you say, is this the best representation of the thoughts that were in my head? Um, Working with Jason, uh, Sean Alexander, actually helped because, you know, we were friends before we actually started working together. So I had him to be like a gauge and a barometer for what was good, um, how things worked. Um, I could ask him questions, you know, that probably if it were just like in some of my assignments for other publishers, I just turn in a script and a book comes. I don't really have contact with an artist or any of the other team outside of my editor. So being able to have Jason sort of hold my hand through the process of a creator-owned book and really help work the kinks out of my work when I'm trying to say something layered or complicated, um, he's there to say, hey, how about trying it this way or that type of thing? So it's true. It's truly a partnership. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a macro sense to your question, all of it helps. All of the writing helps because it's all story at the end of the day. And the more that I write in general, the better I think the work overall gets. And to, you know, to talk about your start in terms of uh, writing for television. So um, as I understand, you grew up in or were born in Annapolis and grew up in that that area. Yeah, I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland. Um uh, was born at the Naval Academy. And so there was a lot of history just with the city. It's a colonial town. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a lot of history there. So it wasn't really a surprise that I was interested in history because I lived around it. The streets still have that brick uh, colonial feel. And it was a slave port as well. Um, Kunta Kinte from Roots landed at the docks of uh, Annapolis, Maryland. So um, there's a lot of history there and mm-hmm. that sort of informed, uh, the early interest. And then that just kind of took off there. And as well, we had like a lot of movie theaters back there. I love movies. And so even as a kid, um, I was always in theaters and I saw a lot of stuff as a child. I probably shouldn't have seen uh, <laughs> a lot of horror films, a lot of black exploitation films, a lot of classics. Okay. Like yeah. I knew who I'd seen the Scorsese movies as a child, like in single digits. Um, and oh, wow. no one ever questioned. Me. I just walked in a theater and right. so I was exposed to a lot. And I think that actually helped me before I got to college, understand the rhythm and pacing of story in general, because I did it so much and I'm the only mm-hmm. child. So, um, you know, movies, television, comic books were like my friend. And all of that sort of built in this um, natural understanding that um, was school before school. Okay. And so you went to Howard University. By the time you get there, did, were you already thinking that I, I want to be a writer, whether or not it's a screenwriter? Was that well, your thought by the time you get to college or did that come uh, later? Howard wasn't my first stop in college because I tried to be an athlete and you know, the way athletics works is it tells you very quickly that you shouldn't be when you shouldn't be. (laughs) Um, 
when I was in the eighth grade, I believe I had a teacher, Jay Silberberg, um, who I was a class clown and he gave me an assignment for the school newspaper, like the front article, the main article. And he said, um, it was almost like a dare. Like, you know, you talk so much stuff and you do all of this. I'm going to give you this thing to do that I know you won't accomplish well. And my oppositional defiance kicked in and said, I'm going to show you. And it was sort of like a Jedi mind trick. I applied myself one of the first times I can remember actually applying myself consciously. And when I turned the article in the next day, he said, you know, if you focused on being a writer as much as you do on being the, the class clown, you might end up one day being a really good writer. And that kind of a seed was planted in the back of my mind, even though I didn't say, yeah, I'm going to be a writer, like, you know, Rocky and the music goes off. It was more of when any, anytime anyone ever asked me what I wanted to be, mm -hmm. I would kind of sheepishly say writer because writer one, somebody said I was good at it. And two, it felt like lawyer, doctor, writer, it felt important, but it didn't necessarily feel real because I didn't have anybody around me to compare it to. I didn't have like Stephen King up the street or this person. It was like, how do you become one of these things? And so that's why I didn't really, it didn't really catch until after sports. It was like, what are you going to do with your life? Um, and certain circumstances fell into play to where I went back to school, started taking it seriously, started working on movies in the DC, Maryland area. Because um, a lot of movies come there to do their glamour shots in the White House and different things. And met a lot of people and who put me in a good position and helped me connect A to B. And then from there, you went off to, to L.A. I, I think I, I read somewhere that um, your first job out in L.A. was as a was it a PA on Blade? It's production assistant on the movie Blade uh, from the beginning to the end. Um, you know, in those blood club scenes, my job was to stand at the door and push the extras back in that didn't want to get blood on them anymore. And, <laughs> um, you know, oh, wow. it, was, it was a great gig. Um, yeah. got to know Steve Norrington, the director, and Wesley was cool. And um, it was a really, it was one of those sets where a lot of people who I did not know were like famous behind the scenes really had made a real imprint in the business. And I was fortunate. I've been fortunate in a lot of ways in that way that I've been able to brush against folk who were really good at what they do. I worked on a movie, The Green Mile, and uh, a lot of the people that were involved with that, even the great, late, great Bernie Wrightson and um, uh, Stephen King, that was the reason I wanted to do it in the first place, and Frank Darabont. Um, just a lot of folks who had a pop culture, sci fi, comics like background um uh i was able to sort of just be in their orbit and see that there was more there was actual careers attached to this thing it wasn't just um fantasy and something that i like to do like if i really applied myself there was something there for me to right. see and so while while you were doing this and working as a, a production assistant or on other films, are you writing this you know entire time, like trying no. to get into a writer room? Or no, I was trying to figure out how to survive first because I was living in my car. Okay, um, 
And still the distance between writing and not writing, uh, being a production assistant, a location manager, security guard, I've had it virtually every job that you could have under the sun before I actually broke into writing. Um, which was actually a good thing because I got to understand the mechanics of producing things. Um, I think in the beginning, I thought that what it came down to was if you could just write well, you would just have a job as a writer. And you learn that being a writer is sometimes being a manager, being a leader, um, being your own hype man. Like you have to do a lot of things. You almost are creating your own business because you're an independent contractor, even though we are in a, in a guild. Um, you know, it really comes down to um, you being able to create all of these other facets of this career other than just the thing that is the verb of what you do, like a writer mm -hmm. writes. But there's so much other stuff around it. And all of that stuff in production helped me learn what that stuff is. And then, I mean, writing in terms of comic books or like writing independently as a screenplay, at least from my outside perspective, seems to be different than like television writing and being in a writer's room. Was the Damon Wayans, My Wife and Kids, the first time you were ever, I guess, staffed in a writer's room? Yeah, um, that was the first time. Um, I got a staff gig. I was a punch-up writer for that show for a year before I got staffed. Um, okay. And I'd known Damon Wayans. Damon was the one who sort of opened the door and made it seem real. You know, he created the bridge for me to get from one place to another. Um, so, yeah, that was the first. That was the beginning. And so, I mean, what lessons do you do you think you learned in that like first writer's room that you still you know carry with you today? Because I mean, you've written for Everybody Hates Chris and The Boondocks and American Gods, and now with HBO Max's um, Winning Time, do you think there's things that from the very beginning that you still carry with you today? Well, for sure. Um, you know, you learn how to work with people other writers um you learn i think that if there was a key to any of the jobs that i've had in any of the positions from the top to the bottom is i try to come into a situation and learn very quickly what is this what does this environment need like what are they missing like sometimes on some shows they need a guy that's funny or they may need a guy who focuses more on story or more of a producerial guy, a guy that can create a bridge from the writer's room to the actors. Um, whatever it is, I try to figure out where my place is in that. And the shows where I've been successful, I usually figure that out and I'm able to, uh, to provide that thing for a show if the fit is the right fit. Um, but yeah, as far as learning, there's a psychological stuff too, imposter syndrome, you know, do I really belong here? Um, the insecurity and anxiety that comes with the pressure of performing every day it was much harder mm -hmm. in comedy than in drama um, because you got to be funny all the time, at least in my head. Um, you got to try to be, and you know, I've got a good sense of humor. I've been around guys who had a great sense of humor. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, and then the, the ability to create structure in your life and to be self disciplined. There's always that as well. Um, 
some people don't have that. You know, they need like the structure of a regular job to where you start on time and you end on time. Sometimes in the writer's rooms I've been in and on shows like we're winning time, myself and Max Bornstein, we write all the episodes. And on other shows I've been where you had 12 writers in a room. Um, so it's all different. And you just have to be able to develop the ability to be flexible and move from one place to another. Does something like imposter syndrome that you you mentioned, does it still does it sure. still get to you at times? I mean, now you're like you said, you and Max Bornstein are writing every one of the episodes. You're, I guess, currently working on the second season now. You're also an executive producer of the show, which I would imagine has like an added uh, a definite added uh, stress and element to it. But does that still plague you at times? Oh, yeah. Um, I just left there to come here. I just clicked <laughs> off one Zoom to come to this one. Um, yeah, I mean, um, always there are times when you get assignments or I don't think there's ever been a time when I've approached the story and just said, I got this, you know, this is going to be great. Um, there's always the reality of whatever's in my head will never be as good on the page. And the only mm-hmm. thing that's the problem is me. You know, I'm the one that's messing it up because I'm not perfect. Uh, far from it. So, um, yeah, it, there's always insecurity. There's always anxiety. I, I don't know what I would do without it. I'm afraid. Usually the people that I know that are really, really cocky and self-assured, they aren't the best writers. Most of the people that I know have fear, and that fear sort of speaks to a a sense of desire um, to do well and putting their heart and their head in it together, not just one aspect of that. Mm -hmm. Is there um, a difference in terms of the different things you've written for, like when you're on a a sitcom or on a network show, like Everybody Hates Chris, and then for Philadelphia with you and Jason Sean Alexander and now with you know Winning Time which is uh, I guess adapted from the book Showtime by um uh Jeff Perlman it, it, is there do you look at it as like writing's writing or are there particular difficulties depending on you know what it is you're trying to do and try to you know accomplish especially with something like Winning Time where um, some of the folks that are being portrayed in the series are still around, still here, might have comments on like, you know, what the show says. Like, does that, is that added pressure? Is that like a different gear you kick in when you're, you're writing it or is your focus still on your characters? Yeah, no, I, it's all story to me. I wish I okay. had a lofty, as you were asking, I was trying to come up with a lofty <laughs> answer to be like, yo, this, this, this beautiful. And I didn't know it's all. I look at it all as story. If you were to see my desk right now, you would see a comic book script. You would see a movie script over there. You would see a TV script. Um, There's all, it's all the same to me. I don't really, you know, the reward in some financially is different from one to the other, but I approach them all the same. You know, I don't really differentiate one from the other. Right. Uh, This is kind of like a, a bigger question in terms of Philadelphia, kind of more general, but something I was wondering if you had any, you know, maybe just from your own experience, you talked about some of the hammer horror films, but um, what do you think is the lasting appeal of vampires? 
I mean, that we, they're still so relevant today. I mean, right, you have Philadelphia. You also, they just are doing an interview with the vampire you know, TV show. Mm-hmm. I think vampires more so than a lot of other monsters evolve. Um, you have, if you start off with Bram Stoker and the Bella Lugosi, you know, movies, um, they were pretty simple. Um, and you've had so many different iterations over time um, to where they can be more emotional or they can be romantic or they can be frightening or they can know karate or, um, you know, there's so many different ways to sort of um, tell a story mm-hmm. about these characters. They can be contemplative. They can be mindless. You know, they can be so many different things. Whereas typically, a zombie is a zombie. Either they're fast or slow, you know, but right. shoot them in the head. It is what it is. Werewolves, it's more about the story itself. You know, I re- the howling or wolven, it's like, is it investigative, whatever. But the monster itself is sort of, it's the design that's the big mm-hmm. difference. Does it look more with the big snout or does it look like Lon Chaney with like a furry face? Um, but the idea under it is still the same. You're cursed by the moon, you become a werewolf. Um, I, I think it's just, there's so much, so many dimensions to the idea of, um, you know, I can think of 10 different vampire movies that I love and they're all the, uh, they're all different. You know, you can go mm-hmm. from the lost boys to Bram Stoker's Dracula and they're completely different types of movies, but they're vampires, you know, at the end of the day. So always trying to, um, to, to see the evolution. The evolution, I think, is the thing that's under why they still have bite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a well put. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I also wanted to ask, in addition to everything you know else you have going on, I, I think I don't know if it was just last year, um, you've started Zombie Love Studios to in order to mm-hmm. publish your own I think horror and other genre, you know, comic books. So, um, why, why take on that, you know, added element? Well, a lot of times when it comes to comics, um, you have to either wait until someone asks you if you would like to write a book. Like, you know, there are times when I'll wake up and, I have an email from an editor and the editor is like, Hey, we like Philadelphia. Would you like to do this thing? Or, you know, you can submit pitches of course, but more often than not, someone requests my services. Mm-hmm. Um, or if it's a creator owned thing, I have to come up with a pitch and I have to sell a publisher on the idea of doing a thing. And sometimes they may not want to do it completely the way that I want to do it. I wanted the freedom to be able to tell the story the way that I wanted to tell the story. Um, I like the idea of, uh, I collect books. I love books. And I wanted to make some really cool books that were prestige type books that really were the best of the best. Um, and that's what I set out to do. Is there any, I guess, thing you can talk about it at this point yeah. that, uh, our readers should be on the the our set our readers our listeners i forgot where yeah, it was yeah, yeah, yeah. our listeners it, have 
in in January, Blackula is the first book that comes out, I believe, the third week in January. And we'll be doing a lot of press for that in the coming weeks because we're not very far from that right now. The artwork is by Jason Sean Alexander, who is also our director in the company. All um, right. And then uh, probably quarterly, you'll see trades, full trades, not floppies, of okay. different books that mystery, sci-fi, or um, staying within that sort of realm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's that's the plan for now. You know, the only rub is I'm writing everything. So until this arm falls off or I lose my ability to think, um, it's a lot because of all the other writing that goes with goes that's coming out of my head as well so right. hopefully i can keep it up and yeah i uh, i hope so too because i love uh i love i love reading what you're you're working Thanks. on and putting out um i appreciate that yeah i uh i ha- i've i've had at least one friend have to get me a a, a new copy of uh volume one of philadelphia because i've lent it out so many times <laughs> many thanks many thanks um I mean, it's not just the, you know, uh, kind of a sucker for the Philadelphia connection. I, I mean, I grew up so- outside of Philly, but um, I went to college and law school in Philadelphia and worked there for a number of years after law school. Um, I'm, I'm down in Delaware now, but uh, I have a great love for for all things Philadelphia. Um, kind of the other, to kind of take it back to Philadelphia, the really standout, though, is the relationship between James Sang's thing. James Sangster and, and Jimmy, um, their father son dynamic. I mean, you mm-hmm. could take away the vampires and you still have an unbelievably fascinating, like character family study of, of the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in terms of like kind of basing that on, is there any part of like, like you and, and your story? Why the focus on the father-son dynamic? Uh, yeah, uh, a lot of Philadelphia is my relationship with my father and my relationship with my son and my son's relationship to me. Um, you know, of obviously, you know, my father, my relationship with my father is primarily um, the foundation of it. But the empathy that's under it for the son comes from my relationship with my son. So, and trying to look at me through his eyes and not just my own to sort mm-hmm. of bring about a sense of empathy for my father that I would hope my son has for me. So being able to dig into that is sort of a cathartic thing. And um, that's why I think it works. Yeah. I mean, I think empathy is probably the, the perfect word in terms of where I, uh, when I, when I read it and think about it, um, because it's not just Jimmy trying to understand his father. It's his father trying to like understand him and try to express his, you know, um, maybe things that he wanted to make up for in terms of he was a kid trying to make sure his son understands him, but also wanting to protect his son, a little bit of them wanting to protect each other and, uh, all set, amongst this sometimes like very violent uh vampire attacks or whatever situation they find themselves in uh i i i it's just it's so unbelievably well done um 
yeah, I, I think it's the the highlight of the book is is their relationship. Even if you're not a fan of vampires, you should pick it up for to discover the and explore the relationship of the two of them. I mean, it's thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, and and so uh, real uh, real quick, because you mentioned that in in terms of Zombie Love Studios and Blackula coming out, and you'd mentioned earlier liking the Hammer horror films and black exploitation films and. I mean, do you think, and I, I mean, obviously you do from working on it, but um, I guess was it difficult to kind of take a, a black exploitation film from that particular era and like reinterpret it and kind of figure out what 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 this has to say now, or was it uh, kind of a no. dream project? It was. I knew what I wanted to do was why I went to MGM and asked them for the rights. Um, okay. I already knew that, that, like I said, when you watch the movie like over 200 times and you sort of pick it apart from when you were like eight years old all the way up to now, it's like you get a pretty good idea of what you want to do. I knew I wanted that to be the flagship book. Um, And I had a pretty good idea of where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. Mm Mm-hmm. Was it something when you say, you know, how many times you've watched it, was it continuous? Did you ever take a break and like come back and like, wow, this thing that I saw when I was eight and I liked it for one reason, I've discovered so many more things now that I've, you know, older and have other, have, have experienced life more. Yeah. I mean, I think for sure, I don't look at it the same way I did when I was eight years old. Um, (laughs) But I also understand American society and the nature of film. Um, the way stories were told in 1972 versus the way they were told, the way they are told right now, mm-hmm. um, the way the culture is perceived um, then versus now, how we perceive ourselves. Um, all of that goes into how and why and all of that kind of stuff when it comes to rewriting a book or rebooting a book, for lack of a better word. Right. And so that'll be in a trade in January? Yeah. It's in previews right now. It's in All previews, the right. uh, latest previews. So, yeah. All right. I'm, I'll be sure to put a link in the, uh, get that and put a link in the show notes when um, when this goes live. Well, that's exciting. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you. And then I, I guess uh, with winning time, uh, is there mm-hmm. any talk in terms of when that's actually going to be like season two? Uh, we're shooting it now, uh, writing the last script right now. So um, probably uh, this is November. I'm thinking April, May of next year, you'll see season two. Okay. And um, I wanted to ask, though, in terms of, you know, everything else you've been involved in, but particularly, how did you end up involved in, in Winning Time? Because I think Max Bornstein, who you've written with before, um, mm-hmm. I think it had gotten the rights. And then, or, or did no, um, it together. The story of it is, uh, Jim Hecht, who's a huge Laker and basketball fan and one of our executive producers, he read Jeff Perlman's book, loved it, decided it would make a great TV show, got it to Adam McKay who agreed, um, they needed a writer, um, Adam McKay has a deal at HBO. They needed a writer. They hired Max, who called me. Okay. They want to do this thing with me. I said, yeah. And then we were off to the races. Had you had, a, like, 
you know, in terms of like growing up, were you a basketball fan? Were you a Lakers fan during that era? Were you, you know, I mean, I'm sure you were familiar with everyone involved as most people were. Yeah, I was a, a big 76er fan. Um, okay. The 76ers, the Dr. J's 76ers were my team and they always played the Lakers. So I was very familiar with um, the 79, 80, 81 Showtime Lakers. Okay. Um, does that present a particular challenge, like being familiar with it in terms of trying to adapt no, it? it helps. Okay. No, it helps. You know, it's, instead of just reading something from a book, I actually have sort of a, you know, there's a sentimental component to it that helps you fill in some of the gaps for someone who may just only have what they read in the book. Right. Okay. Um, well, that's, I, well, I can't wait. That's uh, uh, for next year in terms of April and, and season two. And then are you, you yourself have, uh, I read a thing on the website, have an overall deal with HBO. Are you working on other things with them as well? Yeah, I've got a few things in development with them and um, hopefully be able to talk about that soon. And um, yeah, I've, uh, I had first two years so I was in one and now I just extended it for three more. So three more years five all together and we'll see what the future holds oh man that's fantastic uh rodney uh well i um i don't want to take up any more of your time i really appreciate you chat with me about writing about philadelphia um i'll put links in the show notes to everything um but i think volume four just came out on october mm-hmm. 26th and then uh issue 25 of philadelphia i believe is going to be out november 30th yeah i was trying um, to find it uh, it was, it's here somewhere. Uh, <laughs> trying to reach over, and this is embarrassing. I usually have my own book within arm's grasp at all times. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, hold on. Let me try one more time to say volume four. There you go. Volume <laughs> four, Philadelphia. On sale. Now. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, be sure to get that if you if anyone listening hasn't read it yet. Um, it the story just keeps getting better and better and better, um, more complex, more nuanced, and it's a, a history lesson, but in the best possible way. Uh, so many, ra- uh, you know, so many lessons still for uh, today and right now. And um, I guess at issue twenty five will be out November thirtieth. But Rob. Um, for, for Comic Book Yeti, this has been Jimmy Gasparro, and thank you very much, uh, Rodney Barnes. Thank you for having me. All right. See everyone next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.